wouldn't it? Over what we got going on. Uh, let's pray again. Father in heaven, I thank you for uh, this time and this place to be here, to be gathered together, to listen to your word, to have it impact us in ways that are truly meaningful, that are centered around your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so our passage today is from Acts 28, verses 17 through 31, and Acts is, you know, everything that happens after the birth of Jesus, up until the time that the book of Acts ends, and the church moves forward unhindered. But it's also this wonderful story about what it's like when things have been bad, and they're not getting better. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 28. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we do know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying of the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. But others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown, grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, for their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and I would turn and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, so let's take a peek at Acts 28. I wanted to start this whole sermon by saying this. He is risen. Yeah, isn't that weird? That statement is as true today as it is every year on Easter Sunday. 
but yet we only say it like one time a year. But it's helpful to hear regularly. He is risen. Yes, he is. He's risen in 2023. He was risen in 2022. How's it going for you? How's 2023 going for you? Is it amazing? Is it Disneyland every day? Is it, is it like the state fair every day? Or does it feel like you're getting hit in the head with a spear every day? And you're frustrated by that because that's what happened last year. And you thought this was the year that getting hit in the head with a spear was going to come to an end. And so you made resolutions about how things were going to get better. Maybe you committed yourself to changing yourself. Or changing others. Or changing the government. Ah. Three impossible tasks. But don't worry. As Eric told us last week, Quitter's Day is Friday. So you only have to struggle through your attempts to try to be a better person, to try to change the person next to you, to try to change the world, change the government. On Friday, you can just say, you know what? I'm done even trying. Because there's no hope. I should just give up and go back to the whatever I had before. Okay. What do you do when your life is like that? When you go back to the reality that you had before January 13th. When you were really thinking, maybe this is the year that things will change. So let's talk for a minute about resolutions. Like, what is the purpose of a New Year's resolution? The purpose of a New Year's resolution is to make an assessment of where you are, what's going on in your life, and to pick one or two things that you're like, next year, these things are going to change about me. I'm going to work on this stuff about me. And we commit ourselves to it. With varying results. Maybe you sit down and you take an assessment of your life and you're like, man, these things need to change. I need to work on these things. Maybe you look at your portfolio after 2022 and you're like, man, I need to reallocate some of my cash because the markets are looking horrible. And the Fed says they're just going to keep raising interest rates. So everything's just going to get more and more expensive for me. Maybe you think to yourself, you know what? Everything's going to change when I become Speaker of the House. I'm going to get elected and things are going to change and I'm going to initiate a whole new way of doing business in the government if I can only get elected after 15 tries. But once I'm elected, things are going to change for sure. Because that's always worked, hasn't it? Speaker of the House is always able to just affect change and Everything's amazing. So what do you do when you make an assessment? Like an actual assessment. You actually look at yourself and say, what is the actual state of affairs in my life? Possibly you've had a great 2022. And you make an assessment of your life and you think to yourself, things are amazing. I don't know how they could get any better in 2023. 
Maybe you make an honest assessment of your life and you say, 2022 was the worst year of my life. And 2023 seems like it's just going to get worse. If that's the way that we arrive at how we're going to think about life and the world, we have two outcomes, triumphalism and despair, and neither of which are we called to live in as Christians. We don't live in this sense of like false triumph, and we don't have to live in this sense of despair, and that's what this passage is about this morning, is how to find real hope when things are bad and they're not getting better. How do we find real hope when things are bad and they're not going to get better? So I have two points, but they're really four points, and I'm going to explain. The first point is this. Scripture expects us to make an honest assessment of our circumstances. Scripture expects and invites us to make an honest assessment of our circumstances. So let's look at Paul's. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. So Paul's been in jail for three days. Most I've ever been in jail was for one day. Three times. So you add it up, it's three days. Um, but, yeah, you can do three days. Except for that's not what this passage is talking about. What this passage is talking about is after three days, after the two years that started back in Acts 21 when he first got arrested, when his brother said to him, please don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to get arrested and it's going to be really bad. And he's like, see ya. And he went to Jerusalem and he got arrested and things got really bad. And first, he was in the Jewish legal system and that wasn't working out really well. So he thought, oh, what could possibly be better than the Jewish legal system? The Roman legal system, that'll be better. What's the worst thing that could end up happening to me? I could be hung on a cross. I'll opt for that. That's his real situation. And why is he in this situation? Well, he tells you, uh, the Jews don't like him. Jews are upset with him. And why are the Jews upset with him? What horrible thing has Paul done that has made the Jews so angry at him that they want him dead? He's been preaching the gospel. They cannot have that. They are going to bend every possible curve of the legal system to be done with him. He's done everything right, and he's been in jail for two years. But he's Paul. He, he wrote a whole section of our New Testament, right? Surely that's going to go in his favor. I mean, he's Paul. But here's what it says. It says... Um, that they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Effectively, Paul is saying, I have no street cred whatsoever. It's not like there's Instagram and Twitter, and they can follow and go, oh, Paul, he's really important now. 
Will, you see what he's, what he's been through? No, he's in Rome. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody cares. That's what he's saying. No one cares. They have no letters about him. They don't know anything about him. But they do know something about the people he represents. Everywhere regarding this sect, it is spoken against. We don't know you, but we do know the people you associate with. And those people are vile, and they are a problem, and they are making everything complicated. So what do you have to say? We'd love to hear from you. This is his reality. He has been suffering and being kind of carried along by this legal system for two years and seemingly has no ability to get out of it in any way. And the group that he's a part of has bad PR. Try to imagine a time when Christianity has bad PR. Just think of any time in history where Christianity has bad PR. Any time at all. Like now. <laughs> Barna does studies, and as they've studied what people think about Christianity, they have, you know, the, the two terms that they use now to define that is that people see Christians as irrelevant or extreme. Who wants to sign up for that? Hey, I got an organization. Would you like to be a part of it? Yeah, what are some of the perks? Uh, people are going to see you as irrelevant and extreme. It's going to be awesome. You should totally join. <laughs> no thanks. Is there anything in it for me? Not really. No. No, that's what's going on with Paul right here. Paul has no reputation to put in front of people. He's only known by his group reputation, and his group reputation is bad. But what, what, it, would be, what it would it be like if it wasn't just the group reputation that was bad, it was your own personal reputation? What if you were actually known by what you had done, by what other people knew about you, and you had a reputation that transcended whatever group you're a part of. What do you do then? What if that's the honest assessment of where you are? Is that your personal reputation is devastating and embarrassing and it's not getting better anytime soon. Maybe you're in high school or junior high and this is your experience right now. Once you're on the nerd list the list of people that don't get invited to stuff, you kind of stay there. It's very hard to get off, as I can tell you. Or maybe you're older and you're known by reputation and it's not good. What do you do? How do you respond when you feel like you're being carried along in the rapids and there's no way that you can get out of it? It's just moving faster and faster. You're getting banged up against the rocks. And you're like, can I please get out of this? And they're like, nah, I'm sorry. There's no life vest for you. What do you do? Thankfully, Scripture tells us. Scripture expects a response to our circumstances. It says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, and from morning until evening, he expounded to them, he explained to them the truth of the gospel, testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced. In the midst of this hardship, the honest assessment of his circumstances, 
He has responded. Scripture expects us to respond to our circumstances. And unlike us, Paul responds fabulously. He's like, I will set up a time to gather with these people and I will explain to them the gospel. That's what I'll do. It's exactly what Christ would want me to do. In the midst of my suffering, I'm going to expound the gospel to these people. And it even says, and some were convinced. Things seem to be turning for Paul. Until you read the rest of the sentence. That says, others disbelieved and walked away. So, Paul is in a really hard spot. He's been in a hard spot for a long time. And he does the thing that he's supposed to do, that the Bible calls him to do, and people's response to it is to go, I'm done with you. Like, we're just, we're done. We, we, you are the person we thought you were. We're officially done. So, things were bad. Paul did exactly what he was supposed to do. And he was Paul. It's not like he didn't know what to say. He was Paul. And the response to him being Paul and preaching the gospel was that people rejected it and nothing changed about where he was. Because sometimes things in our lives are bad. And sometimes when things in our lives are bad, we do exactly the right thing that we're supposed to do. And nothing changes. Nothing gets better. In fact, it just seems to get worse. That's what this says. Make an honest assessment of your life. Scripture expects it. Scripture expects you to make an honest assessment of your circumstances. And sometimes when you do everything you're supposed to, nothing changes. Like in Washington. Thousands and thousands of people come to Washington every year thinking they're going to make it better. Imagine the despair that so many people in Washington, especially career workers and staff workers, who stay year after year after year after year hearing about all these plans to do all these wonderful things that don't ever happen. Or they happen and they don't happen the way they were supposed to. Or, or a small version of it happens. Imagine the despair and the frustration and the confusion and the exhaustion you would feel. You're doing everything right and nothing happens. That's what the ministry that, we, that I lead in Washington focuses on, is how, to, how do we help people who are in that state? But let's, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about something personal. Let's talk about our personal lives. What do we do when it feels like you're being carried along? You seem powerless to, to affect change and try to do everything that's right. Uh, you know, I've shared parts of this before. You know, my, my childhood wasn't amazing. I mean, I, I learned some important things as a child. I learned at the age of five, right? This is, I, I learned physics. I learned physics at the age of five. Important parts of physics. Like, I learned at age five that if you take your foot and you place it at the bottom of a, of a door, 
right? If you shut the door and put your foot at the bottom of it like that, you can actually create kind of enough force to keep that door from opening for a very brief moment of time before your father comes in the door and beats you unconscious. I also learned some other stuff about physics. I learned that a six-year-old is really powerless to intervene in your mother being thrown down the stairs. Intervene though you would try. There's really nothing that you're personal. You're trying to do everything right. But you know what? It just doesn't change. My mom divorced that guy. She remarried this great guy. And when I was 12, I learned that I was powerless to change the impact of a traumatic brain injury that my new dad had. I was powerless to stop going to school with a, with a lunch card that has special color on it that said, this kid is so poor he can't afford his own lunch. I got to show that in line every time I was powerless to change that unless I didn't want to eat, which eventually I decided not to do because that was really humiliating. I also dis discovered that I was powerless to stop my mother from completely spiraling into homelessness after their daughter died, six months after my dad was disabled. But then, when I was 17, the summer I was 17, I decided, you know what? I am just, I'm making an honest assessment of my life. I have nothing but despair. There is no hope of anything getting any better. The only solution to this is for me to write out a note and borrow something of my dad's that he used to go hunting. Because there is no hope of anything getting better. I decided I would wait one week and I would go on a class trip to Colorado where our group parked right next to a Baptist youth retreat and I became a Christian. And everything changed. Everything in my life became amazing after that. It was just, it was sunshine and roses. It was like Disney World every day after that. Except for the part where my mother continued to spiral and eventually spent five or six years homeless and eventually died from complications of homelessness. Life's hard. And sometimes things don't get better. Planted two churches that were really hard. They were so hard that the impact on me had an impact on my family that almost destroyed it. Because I was so used to living stressed out and being stressed out and being in Navy SEAL mode every day, trying to fix things, trying to control things, that it was just overwhelming for everybody around me. When I moved here, actually, four years ago, I was basically suicidal every day. And had been for probably seven or eight years before that. And finally went to the doctor and got some help. And it's helped. But since then, everything's been amazing. Except for the part where my dad's cognitive decline has accelerated in the past year to the point that I've had to fly back multiple times to move him into assisted living. 
It's been wonderful, except for the part where one of my longest best friends has decided that he was more interested in viewing things on the internet that he shouldn't than he was in being married and being available to me when I've gone through the hardest part of my life. It was amazing except for the part where my best friend's daughter was killed in a car accident this past year. And I'm trying to care for him as his life is devastated. And I'm powerless to fix most of these things. I can't do anything about them. They just are happening. I'm not responsible for my dad's cognitive decline, but it's occurring and I can't stop it no matter what I want to do. And as you know, if you're parents, you know that when kids are little, their problems are a skinned knee and a broken bicycle tire and not sleeping through the night, all of which are fixable. And then your kids become adults. And then you're begging for a broken tire and something that you can fix with a Band-Aid. But you can't. On top of all of that stuff, this past year our family has been dealing with a situation with one of our children that has been overwhelming, exhausting, confusing, and paralyzing. All that stuff's happening. I'm trying to start a brand new ministry. I'm starting to lead a new ministry and trying to raise money for it. And this year I raised 30% less than I wanted to raise. And we, my wife and I, in dealing with all this stuff that's going on in our lives, have probably spent $30,000 already on a reduced salary. That's not a pity story, it's just reality. It's the reality of things that happen that you think, oh, this is going to be the better year. And it's just the way that it is. But this isn't about me, this is about you. Some of you are kids. And you got kid problems. And the kid problems, you think to yourself, they're not going to go away. Like, when when am I going to stop listening to my parents fighting every day? When are we going to have enough money to finally take a vacation? When are people in school going to like me? Maybe you're in high school and middle school and you're dealing with that drama that doesn't seem like it's ever going to go away. You've gotten yourself on the wrong list and you're like, how do I ever get off this list? How do I shirk the the reputation that I've been given or that I've earned? Maybe you're dealing with unwanted desires in your heart. You're like, I I wish I didn't have these desires in my heart, but I do. I don't know what to, how can I make them go away? I don't wish, I wish they weren't here. I wish I could lose 30 pounds. I've been trying for years. I can't seem to do it. And I hate myself every time I look in the mirror. When are my spouse and I going to finally get along? When am I going to find a spouse? I I don't want to be single. Why doesn't anybody love me? Why why do I spend every day in my room crying? Where's my hope? It's Acts 28. It's, it's very hard. Life is very, very hard. 
So, I told you this was a two-point sermon, but a four-point sermon. So now we're going to back up. Okay, that's a sound effect. That's automatopoeia. Um, Let's go back and let's do this again. Scripture offers a proper assessment of our circumstances. So first I said that Scripture invited us to make an assessment of our circumstances. But now I'm saying that Scripture provides an honest assessment of our circumstances. And the two things are not the same. And the distinction is critical. Here's how I know. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, grab a Trinity hymnal. Do it right now. This is an interactive sermon. Do it right now. Grab that sermon or grab that hymnal in front of you or your Bible. Okay? In your Bible, I want you to go and I want you to look at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, just grab the first two pages of the Trinity hymnal, okay? But if you got Genesis 1 and 2 in your hands, it should look like this. Right there, okay? Has everybody got this? Okay, now here's what I want you to do. Flip to the back. And now I want you to grab Revelation 21. And you can just like hold the tip of your iPhone maybe. if you just, like, just a teeny tiny tip of it, okay? If you don't have this. But you, that's why I said you can use, use the Trinity hymnal. So find Revelation 21 and 22, Okay, uh, this is the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so you got Revelation 21, 22. It should be like this. Like in my Bible, I am holding two pages. I'm holding two pages in the beginning. This is Eden. This is the Garden of Eden. This is the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I want you to do is this. I want you to grab the middle section that has everything that you're not weren't holding before. Do it right now. I'm dead serious, and hold it up like this, okay? This is the part of the Bible that we live in. You do not live in the first two pages or the last two pages. So the, you put them down. So the answer to the question, how are you doing? my life is not amazing. That is a proper assessment of our lives. And Paul sees this. Paul sees this because he uses Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, where he says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but you will never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. The people's hearts have grown dull, and with their eyes they hear, they, they hear but they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed. Why does he pick this spot? Why is this the central focus of his message? Because it's also the central focus of Jesus' message. Jesus uses this exact 
quote in John 12, Mark 4, and Matthew 13. Why? Why does he use this? Here's, here's where this story starts. Isaiah sees the throne of the Lord. And it is amazing. And there are seraphim there. And he's like, oh my, I can't believe I'm getting to see this. I'm an unclean person. I should not even be able to be present right now. And one of the seraphim comes and touches him with a coal. And he says, behold, I make you clean now. And then that Lord, that magnificent Lord says, listen, I have a message for my people. Who will, who will take it? And Isaiah's like, this message is amazing. Look at what you've done for me. You've healed me. You've restored me. I'll go. Here I am. Send me. What do you want me to say? Yeah, I want you to tell him this. You will indeed hear and never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. These people's hearts have grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Can we have a different message? Because I'm perceiving that this one's not going to go over so well. Like, you just healed me, and now you want me to go tell these people, hey, guess what? Babylon is coming, and you're going to live there. And there's nothing you can do about it. Paul understood this. In the midst of a horrible situation, Paul was living a life that he was able to put in perspective that sometimes you do everything the Lord asks you to do and things get worse. Because that was God's redemptive plan for Paul. You know when Paul's life started getting horrible? The day he became a Christian. <laughs> Hey, Paul, you're kind of an all-star in Jewish thing. How about you come over to our team and, and be a Christian? That's great. It's going to be awesome for me, right? I'm going to get a big house, cool car, lots of neat clothes, fly everywhere I want to go. Oh, no, dude. No, no. Let me tell you how this is going to work out for you. You're going to love it. This is going to be great. Um, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to have far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death, five times at the hands of the Jews. You'll receive 40 lashes, less one. Three times you'll be beaten with rods. Once you'll be stoned. Three times you'll be shipwrecked, a night and a day at sea, adrift at the sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own, your own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Oh, yeah, and, and apart from that, uh, there'll be the daily pressure and anxiety on you for all the churches. That's your ministry. When do, when do things get better? When, when do people start to really think I'm, I'm an amazing person? When, when do people get letters about me that say I'm amazing and they should treat me nice? Well, let's see, they have Revelation 20, okay. And this makes sense. Because Jesus did everything the Father asked him to do. Everything the Father asked him to do. And it says this. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God's providence... And yet our experience, the outcome of our real decisions, are the same thing. And so when you're feeling carried along by situations that you don't like, that you don't want, and that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, the answer is yes, you are being carried along. Sometimes it's because of your own sin. Sometimes it's because you've been sinned against and you're being carried along and you're like, I just feel like I'm just being carried along and it's just all this stuff is happening and I can't stop it. Yes, that is correct. And you're being carried along by Yahweh. That's the thing. You are being carried along by Yahweh. That's your hope right there. What does that mean? Things are going to get better? Not necessarily. And scripture offers us a proper response to our circumstances. With all of this going on, look at what Paul does. For he lived there for two more years, two more years, at his own expense. He had to pay for the right to be in prison. He had to pay for it. You're going to jail and you will pay at your own expense. What kind of attitude is that going to evoke from you? Oh, um, I'm going to welcome all who come proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. But dude, it seems like you're pretty hindered, like you're in jail. No, that's, you don't understand hindrance the way I do. Right? The Holy Spirit is working through me. There's no hindrance on that. No. I have gotten to speak to blue-collar folks to jailers, to people in Caesarea, to ship captains. I've been able to speak to religious leaders, King Herod and Bernice, Governor Felix and Festus. I've had audiences with all kinds of people because this is the path that Christ and the Lord is carrying me upon. I'm going to write Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians and I'm going to encourage churches that are just struggling to figure out how to live because I'm being carried along by God. Because he is in the business of making all things new. Not me. That's not a thing I can do. I can't change the world. But I can participate in what Christ is doing to make all things new. And so people come to me, I can welcome them. And this is what I would call the ability to live in faithful presence. It comes not because we've got a bunch of the Bible memorized. Not because we're living our best lives now but because we understand through spiritual, emotional, relational, vocational, ideological, cultural, and missional formation, we know how to live in a life that is difficult and it's not getting any better. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to welcome everyone? To proclaim the good news, to be pink spoons of the foretaste of the kingdom of God in every circumstance. Maybe you're here this morning and you are saying, my life is so hard right now, I don't think I can make it through another day. There are two things that you need to hear me saying. 
No one can do your walking for you. But you were not created to walk alone. The second thing you need me to hear me saying is in the midst of your suffering, you are called to offer foretastes of the kingdom of God to those around you. So look around you right now. Do that. Just look around you. Come on, I want to see heads moving. Look around you. The people that you are seeing are maybe experiencing their worst time ever right now. And some of them are scared to death to have you know that. And some of them are begging for an opportunity to have you know that. And so even though you're being carried along and you've been in prison for two years, you're going to be there for two more years, welcome, proclaim, this is, and we can do this because we have the hope of the gospel. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus made a list. When he showed up, Jesus said, hey, can you give me a list of all the people that I don't want to spend any time with at all that should absolutely, positively not be a part of the redemptive plan in any way? I need a list. You're like, sure. Uh, There's going to be a woman at the well in Samaria. You're going to want to stay away from her for sure. Um, There's this Syrophoenician woman. She's trouble. There's some beggars and some lepers. There's tax collectors. Those guys are horrible news. Stay away from them. They have a bad reputation. And Jesus was like, oh, thanks. I appreciate this. Okay, first on the list is there appears to be a woman in Samaria. We're going there right now. Jesus moved. His ministry was moving towards people who were hopeless and not fixing their lives forever, but offering them the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that you are a good God who who loves us and who, who moves towards us in our hopelessness and in our brokenness and in our confusion, and in our anger, and in our despair. And you say, I can make you clean. I see you, and I love you. And even though things will not get better in this earthly sense, I can give you a hope that can help you welcome and proclaim to others. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, So we move towards this uh, part of our service where God feeds us at his table, where he invites everyone who is weak and wounded, sick and sore, to come to his table.